0: likewise our our, our 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 households ought to reflect that, and that's the point that Paul is making. Paul is saying, because that's true over here, that ought to be true here, and that's the connection. So when we live out uh, this pattern, this order in our households, uh, we are actually reflecting you know the the war for the cosmos that's been won by Christ.
1: Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Filter. On this show, we recognize that the world can be a confusing place to live in. And so what I seek to do in this show is to equip you to live with biblical clarity in our confusing world so that you can face the chaos of life with wisdom, integrity, and courage. We've got a great episode coming up for you today. I get to talk with an excellent author, really interesting thinker named C.R. Wiley in this episode. We get to talk about his latest book, which is called the household and the war for the cosmos. This book has been really interesting as I read it. As uh, Cr talks about, it um, uh, talks about the household, talks about the family, and what these things mean in terms of God's uh, greater purposes for the world and what God has in store uh, in, in in terms of glorifying Himself, in terms of spreading His kingdom, and so on, and uh, and how we get to play in that. Uh, in the household. His book has been excellent, and we get to go into a lot of different topics in this episode related to uh, the, the question of piety, what that means, uh, the Christian household, and we even get into uh, things such as gender roles, masculinity, and so on. I had a really fun time talking to him. It was a great conversation. Uh, C.R. Wiley is a senior contributor to The Imaginative Conservative and a pastor in Manchester, Connecticut. I think this is actually out of date. He's in Oregon now. His short stories have appeared in The Mythic Circle and Fear and Trembling, and his nonfiction has appeared in Touchstone Magazine, Relevant Magazine Online, and Modern Reformation. He's also the author of Man of the House and the children's book, The Purloined Boy, book one of The Weirdling Cycle. Before we jump into today's episode, let me encourage you, if you have not yet already to subscribe to this show so that you don't miss out on any future episodes that we have or great content like this episode that we have today. Also, would you leave us a rating and review? Uh, Like this video if you're watching on YouTube, leave a rating review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really helps us to uh, be boosted in the rankings and so that other people will find this show and benefit from the content that we have planned uh, as well. Without any further delay, uh, let's jump into my conversation with C.R. Wiley. C.R. Wiley, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Aaron. I'm glad to be with you. Well, I'm excited to have you here. I've been looking forward to this, been wanting to get to have a conversation with you uh, for a little while now. We are here today to we're going to talk about uh, several issues. I'm sure we'll get into some different topics, but we are talking about your book, which is the household and the war for the cosmos. Great book that I've been enjoying. Uh, start off just by sharing with us. Why did you write this book in any book is, is an investment. This, this isn't the largest book, but I'm sure <laughs> it was, it still t- took some time. Okay. So why the investment and why, what, what drove you to write the book?
0: Well, I, uh, I wrote another book entitled man of the house. And, uh, that book was kind of a hands-on approach or at least a treatment, uh, for a traditional productive household. And what I wanted to do with this book was put that within a larger framework. It was uh, actually uh, something that I worked on for a conference, the Touchstone uh, annual conference. And uh, so I I delivered a, a talk at that conference and it was pretty well received. People uh, other, uh, presenters, speakers there really liked it. So I was very pleased with that. So like one of them was Nancy Piercy Nancy does, uh, I think the, the, either the forward or the afterward. And then I think, uh, Tony Esslin was also there and they both liked it a lot. So anyway, uh, that was kind of the seed. And then what I did is I took that and sort of uh, developed it into a, a larger treatment and that's where the book came from. So it's the, the idea is, uh, you know, taking the productive household and sort of, uh, you know, sort of situating it in a larger framework, meaning, you know, reality itself uh, and how, how households relate to the larger picture.
1: Yeah. You, you start off the book in chapter one with talking about just different, uh, issues, movements and whatnot that we've seen in our society that, that it sounds like led to you, uh, getting this vision or, or, desire to need to contribute to the conversation, right? To present what the Christian household should look like, the role that it should play in the world. What are some of the movements that you've seen in our culture that you think have been, um, that have made it necessary to speak up and present, okay, no, this this is what scripture tells us
0: and what we should be endeavoring for as the church. Yeah, well, I think that there are a range of reasons that are likely familiar to most folks. There has been a uh, kind of long uh, sort of project that uh, has uh, worked effectively to undermine the integrity and the health of households. And we see that uh, primarily coming from the political left, uh, and it's had an effect not only on politics, but on culture, uh, more generally speaking, education and so forth. Uh, I went to Harvard Divinity School, uh, spent some time there surrounded by people I disagreed with about just about everything. <laughs> so I, I had an opportunity to hear, you know, uh, their best uh, arguments for really a world that was uh, kind of post uh, household centered. And my conviction based on personal experience, but also just uh, in ministry, um, really led me to. Uh, the conviction or or, uh, I, I maybe a better way to put it was I, my conviction was never really shaken, but he actually strengthened by these debates that I have with these folks, that the household is not only essential for uh, a healthy culture, uh, but you really can't have the Christian faith without Household centered approach to life, so uh, those con- those uh, convictions led me to you know develop a lot of my, the things I've written about over over the years. Yeah, I don't know if I've answered the question very well. Maybe I've gotten off on a, ta- a tangent.
1: No, I think that helps to. I think that helps us to understand one of the things that you did mention in your answer, but then also in the book is your own personal experience with a household, or or right. lack thereof. How did, how did that uh, influence your your thoughts uh, going into writing this book and, uh, and I guess even in, in your own development and understanding of, of a Christian household prior to writing this book?
0: Yeah. Well, in the book, I note that I came from a broken home, but lots of people do these days. It was less common when our household broke up. When I was a kid, I was about 11 years old. And um, so because of that, um, you know, I was with my my mother, who was not well, uh, she was in and out of mental institutions over the course of the you know the uh, rest of her life after that event, and uh, so I was pretty much on my own. My own. I uh, had the good. I had the bless the blessing of being um, you know a friend of a preacher's kid, and he was my best friend. And so, consequently, because he had to go to church, I went to church with him, and it was through that that I came to hear the gospel and come to believe it. Um, but uh, because of the, the voids or the, the absence uh, of a healthy household environment within which I, you know, could grow up in, I I was interested when it came time for me uh, to marry and to have children of my own to understand better what I was missing. <laughs> so I, I did a lot of research, a lot, a lot of thinking, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, uh, just work writing, trying to develop my understanding. And, you uh, I guess, uh, you know, what I did also is I, I did have, you know, a lot of wonderful Christian people that I got to know who, who really did live out many of the, the things that I describe in, in my books. But I wanted to, uh, to, to address the subject in a way that I didn't see, uh, in the sort of the popular Christian press. Most Christian books, you know, uh, and, and I'm get thinking about books by people like James Dobson or Gary Smalley. They take a kind of a psychological approach, kind of a, even a pedagogical approach to, you know, households and how they function and how children are raised in and, them. And all that stuff is fine. But uh, I didn't think that the aspects of the household that I found most interesting were being treated, uh, you know, much at all. And having a background in philosophy, I, I taught philosophy at the college level for about a decade. I knew that there were uh, there were things that uh, you know were there in the history of philosophy that I could uh, get to and look at and study and so forth that talked about households in a in a broader way, not just uh, in terms of the psychology, sort of the psychological dimensions of household life and, you know, the relationships that can be enjoyed within a household, but economically, uh, their their role in a political order, those sorts of things. So, um, because I didn't see any Christian, at least contemporary uh, treatment or popular treatment of those themes, I felt like, well, I guess I better do it myself. So, that's how it it came about.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's funny that's often how things come about, right? You you see you see a hole and you say, "All right, well, I'm going to fill it." And uh, and so you get to work. Well, great. So you you start the book and and I think so like you said, you um you wanted to have a different approach to talking about the household. You saw a need to bring about uh some some aspects of the household that you thought uh were maybe missing in other treatments, and I think that that someone will recognize that in that Your book, which is, like I said, it's on the cover of the household, right, starts with part one. uh, Nearly half the book is all about piety, which might be surprising for someone expecting a book on how to be a mom or dad,
0: right? Right,
1: right. Uh, And so explain to us, why did you start there? uh, What do you mean by piety?
0: Well, in the uh, first century, uh, the Latin word peus and uh, the Greek term eusebio, referred to a much more, I guess, broad and robust understanding of piety than most people have today. So I think that, well, first of all, hardly anyone even uses the term piety anymore. (laughs) I remember, you know, guys who did, but they were all old when I was a young Christian and they died out. And then younger guys came along and used other terms. And so one of the terms that is, you know, kind of popular is a personal relationship with God or personal relationship with Jesus, something like that. Um, and that can, comp- you know, while that's important, it does not uh, at all um, sort of take into consideration the much broader approach that we saw in the ancient world. And, this, and by the way, this was uh, an approach that early Christians uh, also had. So uh, the way piety was understood in the ancient world is uh, essentially it was, the you know, uh, doing your duty. Uh, it meant uh, making a return or recognizing your benefactor. Uh, and the benefactor obviously could be someone like, you know, um, a local civil authority, or it could be, uh, or it should be, and often was your parents, your father and your mother. So a pious man in the first century was a man who paid his debts, his debts to his parents, to the local authorities, because, you know, you know they uh, were serving the community and and, and uh, administering justice, and then of course God or the gods if you were a pagan. So the thing that distinguished a Christian from, say, a, his pagan neighbors wasn't piety. In other words, this this whole practice of of paying your debts or recognizing your debts and making some kind of appropriate return. Uh, it was who were you thanking? So Christians uh, and pagans both believed that you should. You know, be pious uh, uh, in relationship to your parents and to the civil authorities. What distinguished Christians from their from their neighbors was who was on top. Who was God? So you know, uh, it was uh, you know for Christians, obviously, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. For uh, Romans, uh, it was uh, Augustus. Augustus Caesar was the son of God, and we actually have lots of material to to show that, um, that we you know, like for example, in, in Ephesians, when we're told that, that Christ descended and is seated at the right hand of God, the father, uh, it was understood that, uh, Caesar Augustus was also seated in heavenly places with the gods, uh, you know, the gods of, of the Romans, you know, Jupiter and Neptune and so forth. But anyway, so that was the, that was the primary difference between Christians and their neighbors. Both were pious but who's on top was the, was the thing that distinguished Christians.
1: Yeah, and so what are some of the things that, or, or, or what are some of the effects and, and, and things that we can see in Christianity today and, and in the church that, uh, that are here because we have lost that sense of piety? Uh, like you said in the book, we don't, the word itself is something we don't use anymore, but especially if anyone is familiar with that word itself, it doesn't mean what you just explained. It means right. much more like a personal holiness, right? Right. somebody who yeah. does their quiet time. So right. what are the effects that we can see uh, around us today from losing that word and its meaning that we see in the first century?
0: Well, we don't see the very robust social character of piety. piety a pious man was a man who honored his parents, honored his father and his mother. And so forth. Now, of course, you know Christians would say, "Well, yes, that's that's uh, something that we as Christians should do," but uh, they don't they don't think of it in the same way that our ancestors did. They don't see it as an expression of a kind of seamless um, kind of virtue that is just directed at different people. So it's almost like, okay, the piety is for God, and then other you know you know other another sort of, I guess, obligation. Uh, is, you know, um, directed toward your parents or the civil authorities. You know, Christians aren't downplaying the importance of, you know, uh, honoring your parents, but they don't see it as sort of a continuum, Mm -hmm. something that is just simply directed at different people. And consequently, I think sometimes uh, Christians will, in in a kind of pietistic, like like when you hear the term pietism, you know, it refers to the sort of inward light, inner sort of this inner dimension of your life and doesn't have, uh, you know, a, the, the kind of social character that ancient piety did. Uh, and that can be a problem because sometimes people can, uh, you know, divorce their Christianity from sort of the, the world at large, you know, and sort of, yeah. how, you know, what, you know how we live our lives in the world. Whereas piety in the past in the in the ancient world, um, there was no, there was really no, uh, can sort of conceptual barrier to overcome. It was just piety is something you direct, you know, it's it should characterize your life, generally speaking. So you know, like for example, you know, a a warrior could be a pious man uh, as he killed his adversary, <laughs> and and because he he would be doing it. Uh, Out of due regard for you know his his nation, um, his uh, you know uh, household, uh, and uh, you know obviously the gods who were recognized and worshipped by you know the people in his country. So uh, now many Christians today would have you might have a hard time sort of reconciling those two things. How could you be a pious warrior? Well. In the ancient world, it wasn't as difficult to do. In fact, uh, you know the the, the exemplar uh, for Romans was Aeneas, who was, after all, you know, a hero in the Trojan War and led his people out with a sword in his hand uh, to uh, to save them. You know, to save the the survivors from the sack of Troy. But anyway, uh, I, I think that that gets at kind of what I'm what I'm trying to get at.
1: Yeah, I think that the the sense that I got from reading the book was that uh piety in the classical sense is um is accepting
0: responsibility in life due to
1: your allegiance to god right
0: yeah yeah ultimately you know you've got your you know highest allegiance um but piety was something that would be um required of even people who are maybe um lacking in that dimension of their lives so you know a person who uh, had due regard for his parents would be said to be pious in terms of how he regarded his parents or how he treated his parents. Now, of course, it should be true across the board. You know, if you're pious, you know, in terms of you know you're recognizing your debts to God, then you should also be pious with regard to the civil authorities and your parents and so forth. But um, but it does bring up the possibility that a person could be sort of partly pious in ways that we probably wouldn't even think of in those terms today. Interesting. What do you mean by that partly pious? Well, if you if you say for example you did your duty to your parents with regard to your parents, you would be in the ancient world considered pious in that sphere of life. Whereas if you had neglected maybe bringing sacrifices to the temple or or you would be you would be declared impious in that dimension of your life. Okay. Okay.
1: Yeah. So, so you can be, so you can be inconsistent, right? Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But, but the goal is that, uh, and, and what you're trying to bring forth from the, in, in the first part of the book is that we need to reconnect, right? Our, yeah. uh, where there's that separation between understanding our allegiance to God, uh, obedience to him, reconnect that to the rest of our lives, uh, understanding yeah. that, uh, then that has certain responsibilities and expectations for us in our work, in our households, and
0: so on. Right. Would that be right? Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. Now a lot of people stress that very thing. I'm just doing it in a particular way using yeah. the term piety.
1: Yeah. So before we get into that, the connection of piety to the household, just to help people understand this even more, because I think there, there's really a lot. Even though, like I said, you know, your book is relatively, uh, you know, a shorter read. Which I'm not complaining about, I love short books. Uh, and, uh, and, and and the first part is uh, it, it is small, but I think it's dense with a lot to unpack uh, with, with this idea of, of piety because uh, this this classical sense of piety was, was certainly new to me. Um, it, so that's why I want to talk about just a little bit longer. Um, so what is or can you tell us in re, in day to day terms of life, right? What does it look like in in day-to-day life whenever a person, a man, or whoever else uh, goes from not living piously or partially pious to living with piety in the sense that you are talking about and reviving this classical sense? Just in day-to-day terms in real life, or if we were to see it spreading around around us more today, what, what would it start to look like?
0: Well, I think it would, uh, it would kind of move outward in, in a kind of concentric pattern. uh you know, I think the image that the Romans used is is useful in this regard. So the image that the Romans used was the image of Aeneas. So when Troy uh, was uh, burning and, uh, and was about to be completely lost, um, Aeneas, who was uh, a Trojan, uh, went back to his house to help his family, save his family. And he found his father there and uh, his wife and his son. And the uh, his father can't walk. His father is crippled, so he has to carry his father on his back out of the city. So the picture is of uh, a, a warrior in the in the prime of life carrying his aged father on his back, and then uh, in his other uh, in one of his hands he's holding his son's hand, and then in the other hand he's got his sword, and then his fa- his wife is following behind Creusa. So. Uh, Romans took that image and put it on their coinage. So it was very common in the first century to see a picture of Aeneas with his father on his back and the word "pius" uh, for piety. And uh, the con- the idea that was intended to be conveyed through that is take responsibility for you know, the people uh, who depend upon you, your children, your parents, that kind of thing. A pious man cares for his parents. So like when we hear the word honor, honor your father and mother. What does that mean? Does it just mean to have like a, you know, just a kind of a positive disposition toward them to kind of think of them in a sort of uh, elevated way? Or mm-hmm. does it have any sort of practical implications for your life? <laughs> it means- yeah. uh, Practical stuff. I mean, doing honoring your parents means you know caring for them and their in in their needs, in their need, and 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 same uh, same respect means caring for your children and so forth. It means taking responsibility for your uh, your you know being dutiful. That's in fact, that's I think that's probably the best uh, transliteration or not transliteration or or sort of explanation for what piety is. It means doing your duty. Yeah. So. Uh, if we had a society that uh, was filled with people doing their duty, it'd be a better world. Yeah, yeah, I agree,
1: and and hopefully we can start with Christians, right? Right? right. Yeah, hopefully we can start with Christians doing their duty, because uh, I think that a, a lot of Christians today uh, are living with the that the a little bit more modern sense of piety, where they're doing their best to be. Um, <laughs> are halfway doing their best to be good people, right? To, uh, at the very least, uh, avoid sin or avoid the big sins. Um, You know, maybe have a little bit of devotion time in their life. But then that's completely separated from what happens outside of devotion time or what happens outside of church time or small group time and so on. And and I think that we really often then, we don't say it, but we start functionally
0: living as relativists. Right. Yeah. You you have kind of a schizophrenia that, you know, kind of two lives, right? You know, your pious life, which is your devotions and the church attendance and then then the rest of your life. Whereas in the ancient world, it would all have been seamless.
1: Yeah. So what I'm imagining is in our culture today and certainly in the West, and unfortunately, I think it would apply to Christians, is that what I'm imagining is that if we were to produce a coin, it would be uh, just the... um, just the young man and his vibrance, or it would be a gender neutral individual. (laughs) Uh, So it would be the, it would be the non-binary human being standing there um, with, with no responsibilities, right? Certainly no old gross person, no burdensome children, uh, no chains or, uh, you know, or uh, or work, uh, you know, you know, working tools, uh, it would just be the individual standing there uh, pursuing whatever the individual desired and and i think that christians i think we approach a lot of our life in that way and 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 not thinking what is my uh submission before the cross mean uh for my duty in the home and my duty uh to my work to my city and, and country and so on um instead when we approach all those things it is just
0: what is my heart desire what, yeah, feel, what
1: feels right and feels good,
0: right? And if something is external, then it's some kind of imposition, and uh, it may not even it may not feel authentic. I mean, we're we're really into authenticity. and You, know, you got to feel it. That kind of thing. Sometimes yeah. doing the right thing just means doing it whether you like it or not. You know, you just yeah. do it. Yeah. The you know the the Nike slogan. <laughs> but I think I think uh, you know back to your comment about a human being and it kind of non-binary human, what you've described as someone who's not a human being, there is no such thing as a sexless human being, you know, you're either male or female. And okay. then uh, there are also, um, you know, certain obligations that came with being uh, a man or a woman in the ancient world. And I think are still, still the case today. They're still, we, we do have different duties depending upon our, our sex. And um, you know, I said something that would have just, you know, with my days at Harvard Divinity School would have led to hoots and hollers and cries of outrage. That was always fun to do that. <laughs> mm-hmm. But there, there there is there, there really are uh, duties that uh, belong to us uh, because we are embodied, because we're men or we're women. And uh, those duties are to, you know, our elders, to, to those who follow behind us, the next generation, and outward from there. But yeah, that's really what I was getting at with uh, piety. I wanted to help people see that we've lost something important. Yeah. So I want to get into some of those specific
1: duties of, of men and women, uh, talk about masculinity, but we're, we're going to get into that in a, in a little bit. Let's continue in the book for now. So let's talk about now going into part two and talking about the household and the vision that you're putting forth. First, what what do you mean by the household? What does that term mean? And then what is your vision that you're putting forward in this book for the household and its role in the war for the cosmos because uh, if, if it's not obvious already uh chris you're a guy that likes old words and, <laughs> and so i think uh, i think one of the unique parts of your book uh not just this starts with piety but that it even uses the word household in the right. title I, as i was reflecting on on this and reading i was thinking you know th- even the word household isn't something that i hear that often anymore
0: so right. whenever you talk about the household what does that mean and then what is its role in the war for the cosmos well, there there are words that we generally assume are synonymous, but are actually uh, distinct. I don't actually believe that there are synonyms in the world. I think, if you had a genuine synonym, then you've got a redundancy. So, uh, if you know two words mean the exact same thing, you've got more words than you need. So, every word has a sort of subtle nuance that justifies its continued use. So, like when we use the word family, we're talking about familial. We're talking about some kind of biological relation. Now, how does that relate to households? Well, often in households, you do have people who are biologically related and who are on familiar terms with each other because they're with each other a lot. But um, a, a household is more uh, kind of kind of a way of thinking about uh, a structure, and it could be understood to be a physical thing. You know, when we look at, we say, "Well, look at that house over there." Um, you know, we're often talking about a Physical thing, but we've always used the word "house" to be, uh, you know, something or a word that could refer to something uh, broader than the physical structure. Uh, and what we're getting at when we use the house, the word "house" in that way, is we're talking about a different kind of structure. So, like we say, uh, you know, uh, a royal household. You know, what we're talking about is uh, a set of uh, sort of a you know sort of uh, institutions within a uh, in a, in a society that, that for governance so a ruling house is a house that yes is you know got a family in it You know, there is a king, there is a queen, they are married, they have kids, princes and princesses and stuff like that. But Mm -hmm. what we're getting at is something sort of larger than just the family relations or the physical thing that they live in with, you know, in that case would be like, a, I guess, a palace or castle or something. What we're getting at is some kind of social structure. So when I use the term household, I'm talking about a social structure. In particular, I'm talking about an authority structure that governs, the, you know, the, 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 lives of the people who live in it. And um, so I guess that's, that's kind of the, the heart of it. When you, when you're referring to a household, you're referring to uh, that kind of thing, a social institution, a kind of authority structure. Um, and this relates to the word economy. Um, I don't know if you were hoping to get to that, uh, that uh, word, but uh, the word economy comes from, it's actually a Greek compound, it's a, it's a compound word derived from two Greek words, oikos, nomos, oikos meaning house, nomos meaning law. So an economy is the law of the house. And what that reflects is, is the reality that in, in pre-modern times or actually just, you know, even before the industrial revolution, everyone uh, was, you know, uh, everyone lived in a, in, in productive households, households that had to actually grow their own food, you know, do different things to, You know, keep people who lived in them alive, you know, whether the Mm -hmm. the economies were, you know, subsistence economies like a subsistence farm or the economies were based on some kind of trade, you know, uh, where maybe the father was a cobbler or a blacksmith or something like that. But in those households, uh, the father, the paterfamilias, uh, had a great deal of authority because someone had to be responsible for ordering the house make sure that it was productive so that the people who lived in it could, you know, live. <laughs> just that, thats just that simply. Today, we don't mm-hmm. think about our households in that way at all, because yeah. most of the economic activity happens outside of our houses. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and so, and you can see the connections being drawn between part one and part two already. But if, if the vision that you're putting forward by household is that uh, in In the home, you have more than just a group of people who are biologically related, but you have a social structure and, and I really I like that that picture that you give us of the of, of a structure very similar to a building or house being a structure in the family What do, what do you think the the, uh, the image would be or the analogy would be uh, for how most people uh, in America and, and maybe even Christians today see, uh, their, their family, you know, if, if what you're saying is the family is a structure, a social structure, what do you think would be the analogy for what is the more prevalent view of the family?
0: Well, I think people think of their households as kind of recreational centers. And I think they think of their, uh, families as just kind of a group of, uh, people who are fond of each other. <laughs> Yeah, that's kind of it. You know, f- you know, love makes a family. You've, you've seen that bumper sticker. Mm-hmm. Um, in the ancient world, they would say that's nuts. you know, yeah, a family or a household, uh, requires a, a, a number of things. Love is certainly important and that's a big part of it. It's at the heart of it, but it's not the, the whole of it. In fact, if all you had was love and you didn't have justice, you didn't have a way of making a living, you wouldn't even have a household. Um, you need to have these other things to have a household. So I think today, you know, if I were to identify at a, a an image, I don't know, maybe it would be like a, I don't know, like an amoeba, maybe you know, sort of a single cell, you know, w- without any kind of internal structure, <laughs> just a kind of blob of, of a blob of love, <laughs> right? and, and maybe love understood there as being warm feelings. You know, we're just kind of like you know, Mm -hmm. you know, luxuriating in this, in this warm goo that we call love. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Warm feelings with no
1: obligation. Right. But that's definitely the, our culture's current definition of love. Yep. Yeah. So the vision that you're putting forward here is productive households, right? These social structures that have their own internal economy. So for people who are, who are listening and this is a very new idea for them, which I assume is going to be, nearly 100% of the people listening unless they've already read your book. Uh it, just draw that out and explain that a little bit more in and what that looks like in life. Uh for you know your average family where you've got a mom and dad who are are working or maybe a dad who who's working and mom at home with the kids. Uh how is this different and how can those how those families start to look more like a, the kind of household that you're talking about here?
0: Yeah, I think that the thing that uh can help people is just think uh thinking about Uh, whether or not their households are productive. So um, if a a household is merely a recreation center, then there's really not much need for authority. I mean, maybe the authority uh, that, uh, uh, you know, can still be reconciled or sort of, uh, you know, sort of practice in, in that kind of household has to do with, you know, very sort of, simple kind of low order things like don't steal the pizza from your brother's plate, (laughs) stuff, stuff like that. And that's great. And that's that's important Uh that your kids don't whack each other on the head and and do, do stuff to each other. But I think, um, yeah, the, the, the larger question is what, what, uh, you know, are we doing, uh, as a household that is, you know, productive in the sense of not only, you know, providing for ourselves, but also serving Christ in the, in the larger world. Once you begin to think in those terms, uh, uh, then you, you've, 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 you've transitioned out of a kind of recreationalist approach or understanding of a household into something closer to what we see, you know, before the industrial revolution and in antiquity and really the first century. When we, when we think about say the household codes, you know in like ephesians and colossians a lot of christians don't even read that those codes anymore or they're just completely offended by them and they do almost no no work in you know, when it comes to trying to understand them on their own terms they just more or less assume that the way the old you know the way things worked in antiquity is is there were there were a bunch of chauvinists uh, you know, who just liked pushing everybody around and they push their wives around and they push their kids around and they just were control freaks, you know, as if, you know, uh, that's adequate, <laughs> uh, you know, in terms of understanding the household codes, but that's the way people treat them. If you understand the household codes as serving this larger, uh, agenda of, you know, keeping the household productive, not only, uh, you know, economically, but also in, in, in the sense of, you know, glorifying God, then, um, you know, the, they make a lot of sense, you know, um, and it's not just some guy who's kind of a control freak pushing people around, meaning the father, um, you yeah. So, anyway mm-hmm. uh, if you if you start to th- if you start to think about are we being productive what what are we what are we doing as a household that not only cares for ourselves but glorifies God in the world then everything changes, or at least I hope it should. Yeah,
1: and that's a very <laughs> different. Yeah, and, that, and that's a very different picture than what you're talking about before, seeing the household as a recreational center. Right. Uh, or, or seeing it as a, uh, as a leisure center, right. Where it's it, the household, it, you're know, the home is just where you come to decompress from your long day at work, try to keep the kids somewhat sane and get them to bed so that you can chill out. Right. Uh, yeah. it, it, to where it, it is, uh, it is productive. And I'm, and, and I think what you mean by productive is, uh, is, uh, economically productive, but I, but I think what you mean is But you've also already said that, uh, by economy, you're talking about something larger than just, uh, generating financial income, right? Right. You are talking, you're, you're talking about something, um, we're, we're, we're talking about raising up children. Mm -hmm. Um, we're talking about raising up disciples, Mm -hmm. uh, and something that is is so uh, productive in the sense of, uh, producing something that's going to bless the world, whether that be through financial blessings or just in the blessings of service, um, Sharing the gospel, bringing right. bringing God glory, yeah. Right. And so, so I think people, it, as we're starting to grasp this, can already start to see. Okay, so start to see and understand what you mean by the household and its place in the in the war for the cosmos. If right. we start reading those sections of Ephesians and Colossians that you referred to, and uh, applying them to our our lives, how is that going to change? our households and, 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 what is their place in the war for the cosmos? How does it fit into the big picture when we start applying those scriptures to our households?
0: Yeah, I think that the, the, the thing to keep in mind when we talk about the cosmos is that the word cosmos, um, uh, doesn't mean generally the way, you know, the, what we mean by, uh, the word today when we use it. So today, when we think about the word cosmos, or we hear the word cosmos, we think about outer space or something like that, mm-hmm. because of, you know, pop science and that kind of thing. But the word cosmos just means order. In fact, many of the places where the where we see uh, the word world in English in our English Bibles, it's actually the word cosmos that's been translated into the word world, yeah. which is unfortunate, because we generally think about a world as just simply a place where we are. If we don't think about it as an order. We just say, well, it's just a place, topos. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, when we see the word cosmos used in the New Testament, it's, it's being used in this larger sense. There's an order. So God has a household, um, and that household, the household of God, uh, is uh, the household within which Christ and the church are united, So in Ephesians, uh, especially, we see Paul make that connection. He says, you know, uh, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, right? So in some sense, our houses, then, Paul is telling us, are microcosms. They're little versions of the big picture, the big picture is mm-hmm. the cosmos and there's an end of the world. Uh, and that, and the end of the world is this, you know, we see it in revelation and we see the, the marriage supper of the lamb. We see the union of Christ and the church. And it, and when that occurs, then all the things that cr- Christ has secured for the church become the churches, just like in a marriage when a, when a woman and a, and a man are united in marriage, they have a common life and a common wealth. You know, if she comes into the marriage with, a you know, a million dollars of debt and the husband has got a million dollars, guess what? They're at zero because his wealth has just taken you to like zero. Now, of course, the, the marriage that Christ and the church have uh, is uh, much better for the church than that. I mean, what the church receives is eternal life, glory. You know, uh, you know, authority. You know, all the things that belong to Christ are conveyed to the church because of that union. Likewise, our 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 households ought to reflect that, and that's the point that Paul is making. Paul is saying because that's true over here, that ought to be true here, and that's the connection. So when we live out uh, this pattern, this order in our households, uh, we are actually reflecting. You know the the war for the cosmos that's been won by Christ right and uh, we, we also on, a, on an ongoing basis are securing the peace that the, the you know through the order that we uh, you know c- you know maintain in our homes that reflects that larger order.
1: yeah, so you know it, it's been a little while since I've read my Greek philosophy, but there was the idea of the, the cosmos like you talked about, which is more than just the earth, right, right. the world. Uh, like you said, it talked about the 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 bigger order of of things of life, uh, right. but what uh, created the order or or, or, or at least uh, ordered the order was was the the idea of the logos, right? Right. right. Yeah. So you've got the cosmos and the uh, and, and the logos, and so in a sense, whenever we look around at the world, there's attempts to um, establish a, cos- a cosmos all around us there's an attempt by the world to establish uh, an order of here's how things ought to be. Here's how mm-hmm. your homes ought to be, your relationships, your identities, your work and everything else. And essentially what they're doing by trying to establish those cosmos is uh, is really to insert a new lo- logos. Uh,
0: yeah. Which is here, here,
1: here's a king, here's a, a a truth, a meaning. But what we are doing instead is we are trying to set up uh no jesus is is the the word made flesh right the, the logos made flesh he is the truth above all others he is the king over the cosmos
0: right right either we're talking to ourselves or we're listening to what god is saying to us that's basically the choice mm-hmm. and uh you know when when we hear um you know in scripture uh you know references to the world in a negative way that's uh the orders that uh, we have established or that, uh, you know, we are subject to in this present darkness. Uh, when we hear the term world in a positive sense, uh, we're talking about the world that God has made. So God so loved the world that he sent us. Well, in that case, we're talking about the world that God made. Um, when we talk about, you know, do not love the world or anything in the world, you know, if you'd love the world, then the love of God is not in you. What we're talking about in that case is the order that we've made for ourselves. So these two yeah. orders, uh, the order that's, um, really disorder that's out of harmony with God's order, uh, that is what, uh, God hates and what God has made, which is, you know, genuinely good and is, uh, something that we need to be in, you know, in, in harmony with, if we want to enjoy God's blessings, well, that's the order that God made. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So let's talk about manhood and and masculinity and what these things mean through um through a through a biblical lens and also in context of what we've been talking about here in terms of the household. Uh, what what is manhood? Your your one of your other books is titled "Man of the House," right? So uh, so I'm I'm sure you've got you have some ideas you, on on what manhood means in terms of the household. Uh, and the responsibilities, duties of men today. So can you help explain those to us?
0: Yeah, well, I think that, you know, the place to begin with is uh, just in some kind of basic uh, truths. The, you know, uh, w- one of those truths is that, uh, you, know, you know, human beings are uh, made as either male or female and that there are certain things that, that, that correlate to those two sexes. So women obviously bear children or can, you know, uh, you know, of course there are women who wish they could or can't, you know, uh, and can't. uh, But, but what we're talking about here is, you know, sort of the fundamental, you know, realities of biology. And there are certain things that Mm -hmm. follow um, when it comes to uh, these realities. So uh, there are, uh, you know, in these differences, uh, a, a, uh, a, a sense in which um, it requires, uh, you know, to, to, you know, bear children, you know, obviously uh, men um, have a different role in the, in the whole process of conceiving children. Uh, but the, the, the roles uh, I think are fundamentally oriented toward um Glorifying God through the uh, bringing into the world of new people who are made in the image of God, so the image of God being multiplied, and there are are you know ways in which women uh, are involved in that process, and there are ways that men are involved in that process, and 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 bringing children into the world and raising them. Uh, is a long and uh, very um, involved process. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so there are there are things that, you know, fathers, uh, you know, are called to do. There are things that mothers are called to do. And these things are, you know, uh, bound up with, you know, just kind of the biological facts in the ground. So when it comes to what are men made for, well, men are made uh, to, uh, you know, be united to women and they're uh, made to uh, be fathers to children. And I think those are the, those are the primary uh, sort of places in which, you know, when we reflect upon what does it mean to be a man, what does it mean to be masculine, that we can meaningfully, um, you know, make, uh, come to our conclusions about what, uh, you know, it means to be a man. So, you know, th- with those things in mind, when it comes to, you know, establishing a household, you know, that book that I wrote, uh, Man of the House, gets into ways in which um, men, uh, you know, with their wives establish households. And, uh, mm-hmm. and, the, and the, this carries over into other institutions in society. Um, but anyway, that I hope that maybe gets us off on the right foot.
1: Absolutely. You talked earlier about how uh, whenever you were in your classes at Harvard Divinity School, you could uh, bring up this idea that there's uh, a – that there is a true ontological difference in being male and female. And hey. that this comes along with different roles, uh, purposes, and competencies even. Uh, and that this caused a big uproar. Um, you know, Sure. Uh, I'm not saying you're old, but I, but that was a while back. Now I think we're all in the Harvard Divinity Classroom. That's,
0: right, that's right.
1: We're just saying that that's in it. any given setting, um, you know, maybe outside of a Texas barbecue joint, uh, you're going to get clobbered. <laughs>
0: right. Right.
1: <laughs> and even in the church, right? Even right. even in the conversations among among the evangelical church, uh, right. this is a quite a fierce debate, I guess we could say, or, or heated conversation. You know, um, I, the biggest podcast in the Christian world right now is the rise and fall of Mars Hill. And, uh, and, and these, these questions of uh, gender roles and of masculinity is a certainly a recurring theme in it because of, uh, because of Driscoll's ministry, you know, and uh, I was just listening to the latest episode this morning and he uh, my, the host, Mike Cosper. The show overall, I think, is excellent. There's a lot of stuff to learn from it, but I do have some criticisms. Um, but anyway, in, in, the, in the episode that I was listening to this morning, he, he was describing the difference between Mark Driscoll and Josh Harris. And he was saying, you know, these two men couldn't be more different or polar opposites. And he started out by explaining, he said, they could be more polar opposites. One had a ministry that, def- that emphasized masculinity. The other had an, a ministry that emphasized personal holiness. And, you know, I, I almost just stopped it there. <laughs> uh because i got so frustrated and and just wanted to say are you telling me that masculinity and personal holiness are opposites? right. right who says that these are opposites? and and, and that's one of the recurring themes of not just that show. I'm not trying to hate on the show like i already said. I, I do enjoy it and i think it's good. Um but i but i think it, it that is reflective of the way that a lot of people in the church today view masculinity, which is that it is Maybe not maybe not in its essence, but mostly a negative thing whenever they think of it, they don't think of it as something positive uh or something that that is uh that should typify a righteous man um, but something that is that is bad negative dirty or whatever else what is what what's your response whenever you see uh, this debate and and, and And those kind of attitudes towards masculinity
0: and manhood, well, I think uh Carl Truman uh published a great book here not too long ago entitled uh, "The Rise and triumph of the Modern Self yeah where he uh gets into some of the um cultural sources of uh you know or, sort of um, origins of uh a lot of the stuff you just described um that stuff that's kind of uh, second nature to me in the sense that I've you know been aware of the, the things that he's talked about in that book for a long, long time. I think um, when I think about evangelicalism at large today, I do think that uh, there is a kind of um, loss of uh, connection with just certain fundamental facts uh, and realities that constitute our world. And I'm not blaming the church uh, you know, for, for that. It's a, I think it has to do with a kind of larger cultural civilizational crisis that we're, we're passing through. We are a, a tremendously affluent civilization, um, and we are buffered from many realities that we would uh, not have been buffered from in the past. So when a, when a person describes masculinity as somehow toxic, well that tells me that person is living probably in a in an environment in which the obvious goods that uh sort of come from a masculine sort of approach to things long you know having masculine men uh you know nearby and and and, and present to 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 serve the community has been lost on on the the, the person or the the people um you wouldn't no. have you wouldn't have any of this uh, this way of uh, thinking and say, you know, colonial America, when so many things required the kinds of uh, virtues. By the way, the word virtue means manliness or manly uh, from veer for man in, in Latin, which I think mm-hmm. kind of tells you something that's interesting when you think about it. So so yep. which, which what we had is a world for the longest time in which all these things were pretty self-evident you know, uh, women, uh, didn't say ridiculous things like a woman needs a man, like a fish needs a bicycle. I don't know if you've ever come across that one, but you know, it's one that I've heard, uh, on, on, on more than one occasion. And my thought is, well, women are not fish and men are not bicycles. (laughs) And the the only, only a person who lives in, in the kind of, uh, comfortable bubble that you apparently live in could even think in these terms. Now, yeah, people might say well mm-hmm. you know that's the world we live in we don't need men anymore well i'm not entirely convinced that that's the case in fact i think you take far too much for granted you probably live in a little cubicle you probably have a very safe secure existence um you know and you don't even recognize all the guys in the yellow vests who make the road you know that you drive down every day you know and what is it requ- what 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 do we expect of those guys and by the way 90 you know of them are male, except for the people who are holding up the stop signs, (laughs) you know, and and there are reasons for this. Yeah. And, uh, you know, pointing this kind of stuff out, uh, and, and people for whom, you know, their only experience with the physical world is mediated through television shows and stuff like that. Um, Mm -hmm. they just, they just, they're, they're just out of touch with reality. So yes, I, I agree with you. There are a lot of people who think in these, in these terms, um, But um, I think in large part, it has to do with the fact that uh, they don't actually have any real kind of grounding in the the physical world. Um, Anyway, um, you know, concerning masculinity uh, in terms of, uh, you know, is it uh, positive, negative? I can just, uh, you know, if we're going to be talking about lived experience, I could say that in my own life, uh, masculine men were very important to my development and to my mental health when I was younger. So anyway, yeah.
1: Yeah. And I, and I think that, uh, that masculine men are important to the development of every little boy and little girl. Oh yeah, definitely. Just, yeah. just like a strong feminine female.
0: Right? Yeah. They yeah.
1: need, they need both. And I, I see that in my own children, mm-hmm. right? It, it, anyone who who, uh, who's, who's fortunate to, uh, raise children, with a God-fearing spouse gets to see that, right? Yep. Just the the, the the flourishing and different needs that are met by the father and the mother to those children. And so, uh, yeah, and, and I agree with you. It makes me, it makes me very, um, very, very sad, sometimes frustrated uh, <laughs> whether that's good or bad um, to see, you know,
0: the attacks on masculinity, like you talked about, um,
1: you know, and Jesus way- and John
0: Wayne, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I have a a good friend who wrote a kind of response to that book, Jesus of John Wade, uh, Stephen Wolf. It was in First Things, their online edition. But, um, you know, and Stephen brings this very thing out that we're we're talking about here is an upper middle class outlook. And uh, it's out of touch with certain just basic realities. But, um, you know, I I think, uh, you know, Christianity today, like so many of, uh, you know, our sort of... um, elite evangelical institutions, um, are largely, uh, out of touch with, with kind of fundamental realities. Um, I haven't read Christianity today in 20 years. Um, the, just to be honest with you, uh, there's nothing that it, it publishes that interests me. And whenever I pick the thing up, it strikes me as some kind of, I don't know, church products catalog with a few articles sprinkled in that are all intended to make everybody happy. And, uh, (laughs) you know, anyway, I, 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 I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a fan. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, I I just think that, you know, so at my church right now I'm going through a series on the life of David. And whenever I read, whenever (laughs) you read these these, these rich stories from the old Testament, um, they are, they are full of just absolutely masculine men. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and one of the foremost ones being King David himself, who was described as the man after God's own heart. You know, and, right. and, uh, and this past Sunday, I was preaching on uh, 1 Samuel 23, whenever David goes and rescues uh, the city Keilah from attack by the Philistines. And, and as I'm preaching it, it hits me that this is like a John Wayne movie. right it literally it's it's a group of because they're outlaws it's a group of outlaws who swoop in to save a helpless vulnerable town from a menacing threat right yeah i mean that is like every western almost every western movie plot right there in scripture and uh magnificent seven right there yeah yeah (laughs) so many of them and um and then when you look at jesus himself we forget that uh, you know, he was the one who uh, who drove out the money changers, and who was courageous enough and bold enough to face down the religious and political elites of his time, and uh, and yeah, and so I think a part of it too is just uh, I think people maybe start reading scripture with these uh, very colored lenses that filter all those things out.
0: Yeah, I think that's, I think that's true. I also think that what we're p- passing through or experiencing now in our culture at this moment is not unprecedented um, throughout the history of the world. Uh, decadent civilizations are characterized by these out- outlooks and attitudes. We can look at particular, you know, thinkers, you know, pr- people like Rousseau or, you know, Derrida or whomever uh, in our own time. Uh, my conviction though, is that they're more or less, um Creating an apologetic for something that was going sort of trending anyway, and um, if we look at different periods of time in you know course of human history, when you have a, a civilization that moves into its dec- to a decadent phase, all the things that we're seeing in our society characterize that you know those societies at that time: effeminacy and some mm-hmm. kind of kind of overcultured, and it's just a lot of things like that. But anyway, so I, I don't think. uh, uh, by the way, a good resource on this very subject, I don't know if you're familiar with her and I'm not recommending any, you know, I'm not endorsing everything she says, but, uh, but she's got a very, I think, um, sane and, uh, and sort of, uh, insightful, uh, sort of critique of all this stuff. And that's Camille Paglia. Uh, mm. she, mm-hmm. she's, uh, she's uh, very interesting. Yeah. She's a lesbian and she's an atheist, but when mm-hmm. it comes to, uh, Decadence, there's nobody better <laughs> at uh, helping you understand what's going on. <laughs> and Real, she okay. is, I, haven't heard her,
1: I haven't heard her on that topic.
0: Well, just in general, you know, when, when we talk about sort of you know, the phase of civilization, like she's, you know, transgenderism, for example, she can tell you about how transgenderism characterizes a civilization at the phase that we're in every single time. It's not we've got some new terms for it. We've got some ways to to sort of explain it and apologize for it, but it's something that characterizes civilizations that are in the phase that we're in. Um anyway, just one example. Yeah.
1: Okay. Well we're getting short on time, so let me let me finish with this. Uh if that if we are in a predictable phase of a decadent society, what comes next and what does
0: that mean for the church? What's our opportunity? Yeah, I think what's next is preparing for the for the, the next world. So like the subtitle of my book, uh, Man of the House, is how to build a shelter in a world that's falling apart. I think everybody feels it. Um, it's not, I think, uh, news that there are. In fact, I think the level of anxiety that many people feel with regard to the stability and health of our civilization is is felt almost universally. Um, doesn't matter what your political background is or what your strategy is for dealing with it. It doesn't mean you have to be a prepper, but I just th- I just think that this sense of dis ease uh, that something wrong here and it's it's wrong in a pretty fundamental way is something that that just about everybody uh, senses. And then the question is is well what's next? Well, if we if history is a guide, well there's a fairly predictable uh, you know what's next, and that's the dissolution of what, what we currently live in. Now that could take a long time. It could be very short. Um, I don't know, but I think we ought to be, uh, we ought to give ourselves over to building the next world, uh, what comes out of it, the, the world that we live in. So that's, that's where my energies are, are directed. And that's what I'm encouraging people to do. And the worst case scenario, the worst case scenario, if you do this is that, uh, you know, You're prepared for something that didn't happen, or it doesn't happen yet, uh, but uh, you're better off for it anyway. (laughs) So anyway, that's that's my that's the case I make. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah we
1: can be building preparing for the, the next world, like you said, so that whenever the current you know order or regime, however you want to put it, the current oligarchy falls apart, you know there will be the church with our social structures, households ready to step in and to, uh, and to, and to, you know, save, save the country, save the city. Um, yep. I don't yep. know if you've read Rod Drager's uh, latest one, live not by lies. Yeah, I've, I have. Yeah. Rod. Yeah, Rod's, and, and,
0: Rod's a good guy. He's a friend of mine.
1: Yeah. And, and he taught one of the, th- one of the biggest take, takeaways that I had from that book was how, uh, you had those intentional communities spread throughout Czechoslovakia Mm-hmm. Uh, during the the soviet occupation and whenever the soviet union fell uh communism fell in czechoslovakia and uh you know so anyways w- whenever the regime fell apart because you had for decades these these households and these social networks beneath un- underground mm-hmm. building an alternate society whenever their world fell it wasn't a uh, extremely terrible catastrophe because here you had this alternate society that was underground. that just simply came up to the surface. Right. right. They're ready to replace it. And so I hope this what can happen here as well. Well, we've gone over our time. Uh, I just want to thank you so much for joining us on the show today, talking about your book, the household and the war for the cosmos. Uh, I highly recommend it. I have, I've loved it and uh, I'll be linking it in the show notes for anyone who is interested in grabbing a copy Uh, We mentioned several other resources that are going to be linked in the show notes as well. So if any of you guys are interested in grabbing that stuff, uh, click on the link so that you can get access to Chris's book as well as uh, any of the other resources that we mentioned. Chris, once again, thank you so much for joining us today on Filter. Uh, Hopefully we'll get to talk again soon.
0: Yeah, thanks, Aaron. I enjoyed it very much. Thanks for listening. I hope this episode
1: provided you with biblical clarity to live with confidence in our confused world. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch up later from me, you can go to my website, aaronchamp.com. While you're there, subscribe to my newsletter so that you can be updated anytime I share new content. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at AaronMshamp. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Until then, hold fast to the anchor.